is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, folks. Uh, today on the podcast is like a really special day. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to act like, I'm not going to play a cool act like it's not. I, um, <laughs> I have a guest today that I, when I first started doing the podcast, this was one of the people that I thought, man, it would be amazing if uh, we could have them on. So we have that guest with us today. So it's a very special day. I need you to know that off, off, off the rip. Uh, but before we get into that, if uh, you are a person who's not a part of the Patreon community, I want to invite you to join that community. Uh, we, uh, it's open to any of you. We'll have the uh, link in the show notes so that you can uh, be a part of that community. If you're a person who's who's resonated with this content, who has found that um, it's been provocative enough to to cause you to change and how you move throughout the world, we want to invite you to join that community and support us in that way. And also, if you're a person that has a job or leads people or just personally want more coaching in your own spiritual deconstruction or anti-racism, uh, you can also reach out to me with a link that's in the show notes so that I can help you with that also. All right, without further ado, on the podcast, Bree Newsom is is here today. Bree, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come by and talk to me today. Absolutely. Glad to join you. Yeah. How how are you, by the way? I mean, it's like, it's the world is always crazy. It's always crazy yeah. stuff happening, but it's always some fun stuff happening also. I know that recently you... Um, You've been a part of the, the project that Colin Kaepernick just put out, the book, and you were a contributor to that. So how, how are you doing? I mean, there's a, a lot going on. I'm good. I, I am always doing a lot. I'm, I'm one of those people that I think is almost addicted to doing a lot. Like I'm the one I always say, you know, I'm always saying to myself like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do as much. I'm going to step back and then I never do. But it's just because I'm passionate about a lot of stuff, you know, mm. and, I, and I think I feel blessed in that way, right? Like I'm a good kind of busy because everything I'm busy with is stuff that I really care about and, and want to do. So I'm, you know, I'm writing, like you just mentioned, the Abolition for the People book. I really recommend that. Mm. Um, it's a it's a collection of essays, a lot of great writers and thinkers in there, just really talking about this system of policing and prisons and this whole question of reform. Um, and I mean, really, we argue that we can't reform it. And right, I, right. I personally, that's something that I have arrived at because I when I began in this struggle in my participation, I thought that we could. I thought it was about, you know, of course, the justice system is, you know, it's it's not fair because if you have more money, you're going to get a fairer shake. But the more right. I learned, the more I realized, like, no, it's it's actually operating like it's designed to, you know, so I, I really recommend um, people read that and dig into that. And I'm also a new mom. I've got an, an eight month old baby, so I'm not sleeping at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably will not really sleep again. I mean, my kids. That's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah two of mine are in college. I still, I still don't really sleep. I know you know? up at night. I know you yeah. up at night. So <laughs> exactly. I'm just, I'm just adjusting to that reality, but it's good. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So man, you, I mean, you already said so much that I want to get into, but I, I, I want to, I want to start with like how I became acquainted with you. Um, it's, I have in the last four or five years and, and I'm not like, I, when I say this kind of stuff, like I don't just throw this stuff around in the last four or five years, I have not heard um, but maybe one or two other speakers that I was compelled as much when I heard you speak at our, our friend Michael McBride's mm-hmm. church mm-hmm. in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I heard you tell your story that I hadn't heard before. And I'm sure many people listening to Existential have not heard the story of, of, 
of what happened in 2000, I think 2015. Yes, 2015. Um, um, and so, you know, you, you told this story about you and the Confederate flag. And so I would just like for you to, and I know you've probably been telling this story a hundred times a year since it happened, um, but as much or as little as that story as you'd like to tell, I would just love for the folks to hear why and then what you did um, with the Confederate flag in 2015. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in 2015, I'm sure if, if people don't remember a lot of other things, they probably remember the shooting at, at the church there in Charleston, um, Mother Emanuel uh, AME Church. And, you know, that was just horrific. That was, this, yeah. this was 2015. Um, you got to understand this was coming on the heels of uh, a lot of high profile cases of black people being shot and killed by police, often being caught on video. Um, I remember in the year 2015 alone, we had um, the Walter Scott case, which had taken place in North Charleston. And just like a little while before that, it was uh, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. So it was the climate was just, I mean, it's what we're living today, right? Yeah, but yeah. that was kind of like the start of the climate, just like really getting to the, the peak that we're seeing today in terms of racial tensions and everything. And um, so that was just horrific. That was just horrific. Um, this white supremacist went in there, shot and killed nine people during a prayer meeting, you know. And I think that with everything that was happening, even though we were seeing all of this violence, that for a lot of us, it felt like, you know, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing that happened mm -hmm. in 1963, mm -hmm. you know, in, in Alabama. Um, it, it, it just was, it just brought up all of these echoes of a long history of violence, especially attacks on the black church, you know, in particular. Um, and so naturally, among other things, a lot of focus went on the Confederate flag. Now, this is something that has been a point of controversy in South Carolina for years and years. They first put that flag up in 1960s, um, you know, as a statement of opposition to the civil rights movement. Everybody knew what that meant, right? It was like yeah, right when the sit-in yeah. protest started is when they raised that flag. Uh, people had protested it for a long time. In the year 2000, they moved the flag from the dome of the Capitol to this flagpole mm. on the lawn, put it on this 30-foot tall flagpole, designed it with this, like, tall fence around it, and then put into the law that it couldn't be lowered for any reason, unless there was a two thirds approval in the state house. Wow. Um, and so that's how we got to this point in 2015, after this horrific act, uh, incident has happened, you've got people are lowering flags all across the country, right? Um, they even lowered the American flag on the, the top of the um, South Carolina state building, mm. but the Confederate flag is still there on the top of the pole. Mm. And, you know, um, Clementa Pinckney, he was the pastor of Emanuel AME, and he was also a state senator. So mm. they were giving him, uh, you know, state procession, funeral, taking his casket through the street. And there's the Confederate flag at the top of the pole. Um, so those were the circumstances. And at that point in time, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is just an hour north of Columbia, South Carolina, where that, that flag was on display. My family's from South Carolina. You know, my, mm. I grew up with my grandmother talking about her experiences with the Klan. We always saw that flag. We always knew what it mm. meant. Um, and so that was the context where I, I got together with a group of others and we talked about taking the flag down, like just like making the statement because to us and to me, just the fact that so much of the focus was on protecting the flag instead of talking about what are the circumstances that have made this cycle of violence going on and on and on and on. We're not talking about breaking that. We're talking about protecting a flag, 
Mm. Right. And the fact that the flag still gets more protection than our lives as black people. Right. Right. Um, And so someone knew another person who had experience actually with like scaling trees. Then they knew a method that could be used for scaling the pole. Um, And so that's how that became the method for taking the flag down. And Mm. then it was a matter of, you know, who could risk being arrested, who could put in the time because it took a couple of days to train on how to scale the pole, who could do that. Um, and I volunteered. And, and I think we all recognize that being a black woman, being directly descended from people who were enslaved in South Carolina and being prepared to kind of talk about it, that it made sense for me to take that role. And I wanted to do it. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was about the whole circumstance, but it was also deeply personal for me because I know that if it weren't for the struggle that all of these other people have done over the years, I would be enslaved still. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's my, that was, those are my ancestors. That's the line I came along from. Mm. Um, you know, I know we've, I've heard about my great, great, great grandmother who was enslaved talking about how she prayed that her children would be free. And I'm descended from her first child that was born into freedom, you know? So it was like, it was all of that, you know, carrying all of that with me. And we, we wanted to make the point that like, you know, we can't wait on South Carolina to tell us that we matter, to tell us that we deserve dignity, you know, this has been going on for so long and it's still going on. You know, the flag has come down, but we know this is still going on, yeah, you know? Man. And so I, I just, it was just a moment where I had an opportunity to really take a stand and I wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I one of the things you brought up is that's interesting and like in a not as important way was I, I actually wondered how you climbed the pole. Like, did you have to train for that? Cause I'm like, yes. I see you in the gear and in the, in the, in the, you know, sort of viral image. I see you in the gear on the pole. And I'm like, did she have to train or just, she's also amongst being a writer and an artist and an activist, also like a climber. It's also so like, yeah, no, somebody actually trained me, trained me okay. for a couple of days. And in fact, the, um, the climbing gear and everything that I used is actually on display at the Smithsonian, the Black Smithsonian DC right now. Yeah, they just opened an exhibit. It's all about the reconstruction era and then kind of talking about, you know, the legacy ongoing that just opened up. Dude, um, so folks, yeah, it's a really amazing. So folks have a chance to go to DC and, and see it. It'll be there through next year, I believe, through next September. How, how does all that sit with you? Like, cause I know that like, you know, I don't know uh, many people who have uh, anything in the Smithsonian from what they did, you know, you seem to carry the the weight of moments like this and, and other activist moments that you've had, you seem to carry it very lightly and, and, and not take it, you know, too seriously. I mean, you know, beyond like the, you understand the gravity of it, but it's not something that you're like, Hey, I'm Brie Newsome. I'm in the Smithsonian. Like how, how does this land on you? How do you carry the the things and the moments that you've been a part of? I I do understand the gravity, but I think it's that I recognize that it's so much bigger than me, if mm. that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, I prayed over scaling the pole like that. That really, to me, felt like a calling in that moment of God mm. saying, yes, I'm, I'm calling you in this moment to go and do this and whatever mm. comes from it, you know, I will protect you. So all of those things I, I honestly don't see as an extension of myself. I see mm. it as like God continuing to testify um Mm. through that particular action and i also recognize again like you know when you're talking particularly about the struggle against slavery and racism you know that's a centuries Mm. old struggle it's um it is surreal sometimes when moments like that happen like people are like hey we'd like to put something in the museum 
it does kind of remind me that there is it's historical, you yeah. know, in a way, yeah. because to me, it still feels like something that we're living every day yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and we're not exactly sure how it's going to play out. So there are some moments like that where it's a little surreal. And I remember like, oh, yeah, like this really was like historical moment. Yeah. You know, some things it's almost hard to even put into context until a lot of time has passed. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. 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 So was that the first time you felt like this is a historic moment? Like, you know, that you you felt, I mean, did you feel that climbing the pole? Did you feel that shortly after? Like, when did you get a sense of like, oh, this is a moment in history? Somewhat like I, I think we all recognize when I say we like everybody who was a part of the action because it was a, a group of us working together. We all recognized it was going to be significant, especially if we succeeded in doing it just because there was so much focus, you know, mm-hmm. on on the flag and the issue at the time. And um, but I think it's more as time goes by that I'm really able to appreciate it, like as I see more. Confederate monuments and statues coming down and, and people, because mm. at the time, you know, it's, it's almost wild to think about now, but at the time people were like, well, is the Confederate flag a controversy, yep. you know, yep. like yep. that was still for a lot of people that was still kind of like a lesson to be learned. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so it is kind of more as time goes by, I can contextualize it more. It was mm-hmm. almost hard to do in the moment because in the moment I was just so focused on just trying to get the flag down, you know, and yeah. like making that particular statement. Yeah. Well, so, and you're, you're, I mean, you're, you operate as a, as a prophet in, in our time. Uh, and you're also a black woman in the United States. And we all know what that is to be a black mm-hmm. woman in the United States. Right. Um, but you have uh, amassed some following and, and people are, are paying attention to what you're saying. And in the midst of that, a lot of folks could lose their sense of purpose and calling. Like, you know, how do you stay connected to like, I'm, you mentioned it earlier, my ancestors, God, mm-hmm. how do you stay connected to those things that are bigger than all of us in the midst of all of this sort of existential threats to mm-hmm. staying grounded? I really do. Like, I believe in spiritual discipline. Uh, mm. And I think it's something that I have come to learn and understand even more as time goes by, because it, it's very easy to lose yourself. I mean, and I don't I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over that and make it seem like, oh, I had no issues at all. And this is not anything that I've dealt with because it was very strange, like becoming famous overnight in that way. Mm -hmm. Very weird. Um, Because I'm like the same person, but all of a sudden people, the world around me is interacting with me differently. You know, people Mm -hmm. don't know me. They're like, oh, Mm -hmm. you're the woman that took down the flag. Come do this. Come, (laughs) you know, come do that. And it's like, it can be a little overwhelming. Oh yeah. You know, it can be, it can be a little overwhelming. And so I think just like, remembering who I am, um, making sure that I really stay close and nurture the relationships of people who have always been with me and who I know mm-hmm. like really love me and support me. Mm-hmm. Even people will tell me like, you need to go sit down <laughs> or like, <laughs> you know, or, like I just people who are just like very real with me yeah. and know me as a person. I think that really helps me kind of stay grounded. And I, I really try not to, I don't want to say not think about it too much, but I just try not to play too much, place so much emphasis in it that I get disconnected from like, cause people lose themselves. And that's what I've seen too. It's like fame can really eat people alive. It really can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want that. I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah, for sure. Well, and also not to mention the fact, you know, there's people who know who you are, but there's the other aspect of it that is certainly with Twitter um, and, and social media, there's the trolls. There's the people who oh, yeah. say things to you that they would never say in person, or maybe some folks do see you and say things in person. Like, you um, uh, strike me as a person who um, 
lives, like you said, with spiritual discipline, but like, but also with like a, you know, a sense of of the the attitude of Christ that is like that is love focused and and the power comes from love and not hate. And I'm not trying to harm people, but how is it that you manage to stay there when I know people be coming at you sideways all the time? You know, it's really interesting when I, when people have attacked me, keeping my focus on Jesus helps because I think about how wild that is what Jesus went through. And I'm not comparing myself to Jesus at all. I want to be very clear about that. No, I am not Jesus. No, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm a saint. No, no, no. I'm not saying none of that at all. So I just want to be real clear about that. But I'm just saying, like, when you think about the life of Jesus, this this is God coming to earth, healing people, loving people, nothing but perfection. And he was betrayed by his friends the state came after him and executed him. Um, People who had walked with him for years and now that he's under arrest, he was abandoned and completely alone um, in that moment. Like I think by not focusing so much on myself, but on reflecting like what Jesus went through the life of Jesus and what does it mean for me to take whatever adversity I'm experiencing and use that as an opportunity to try to be more like Jesus. Hmm. Um, that is what helps me. Like, I mean, I've, I've, I have experienced some, you know, it, it's really kind of, um, there are things that you can't anticipate and predict. That's really wild, hmm. you know, hmm. in terms of, like you have positive reactions because of good things that are happening to you. Um, but then you'll also get some negative reactions from places that you wouldn't have anticipated, Mm. you know, and it's, and it's kind of in those moments, it's easy to talk about love when everything's going great and everybody's being nice to you. But when you have to like really reach down and take whatever hurt and anger you're feeling and, and find a way to, to output love from that, that's where you really get an opportunity to, I think, draw closer to God in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I think, you know, I think that people, especially white folks, will see uh, black activists, uh, black people in general that are outspoken about racism, about white supremacy. Like, it's like those of us that actually name this stuff what it is, we get this, like, this, this stigma attached to us that we hate white people and that we're always angry, we're always mad. And to live in the midst of that and continue to keep going despite being misunderstood, despite people, like, labeling you in ways that are that are harmful and hurtful to you, to keep going is like, is admirable. Like, and I think that like when, when we last saw each other um, on the bus tour, I think last year, mm-hmm. that was one of the things that struck me is, but, you know, sitting in the back of that bus with both you and, and Mike McBride, like just hearing how you talk about what you're going through, but still keeping your focus and still keeping your energy. It's just, I just wanted to say this, it's an admirable thing, like for real. Like, I just don't know that everybody can do that. In fact, I know everybody can't because like, <laughs> some folks start doing this work and then they're out. I mean, yeah. there were there, you know, um, uh, there were there was Eric Reed and Colin Kaepernick, and there were other people who were kneeling, and eventually those other people stopped kneeling mm-hmm. when, when it when the cost you know became became high. And so, and speaking of Colin, I know how did you get involved, like in in this process of of, of collaborating on this project and this book that you just finished um, uh, contributing to? Yeah, well, he just reached out to me, and at the time, okay. I didn't know exactly 
what all was coming together and who all was involved. But, uh, you know, he was starting this publishing company and he knew that he wanted to do this collection of essays on this topic of abolition and, you know, invite different people to write. Um, and of course I just thought that was amazing. Um, you know, I remember when he kneeled for the first time and I've, I've followed football for a long time. I come from like a football loving family, Mm. you know? And so, um, so I remember like when he first kneeled and honestly, my first reaction was like, Oh, okay. I didn't realize it, it wasn't until I saw the reaction to it that I was like, Oh wow. Like, yeah. Like he's like, He's taking a stand on like America's high holy day, like that Sunday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you that's, can't mess. Yeah, that's know? that's sacred. That's the sacred time and day for them for sure. And it and it was actually really brilliant what he did because he went right to the heart of everything. Like it was like in that moment he was able to expose all of the hypocrisies. And I think he's another example of how like even though they tried to force him out of his spot, everything since has only vindicated him mm-hmm. because like you said, like, you know, other people, they gave up other people, um, you know, kind of betrayed him in a way, but now everybody knows he was right. And the more that yeah. you see, the more you see racism in the NFL, the more you see the hypocrisy around, you know, the national anthem and the flag and people saying like, you know, they were jumping on Colin talking about you disrespect the flag. And then they're at the Capitol beating police officers with the flag it's, you know it, yeah yeah it's amazing it's amazing. so you know i just um i i just i really respect him for what for what he's done you know like he is somebody he took a stand and he's his state principled mm. you know he he really is kind of like um i mean i, I I'm, I'm always not big on comparing people but i think he mm-hmm. is in some ways the closest thing our generation has to like a muhammad ali type figure mm-hmm. where you really have mm-hmm. an athlete kind mm-hmm. of using their platform and taking a stand in that way. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned earlier, you know, that that your contribution and that this whole book is about, um, you know, abolition. And mm-hmm. and I know, I think I heard you on a podcast recently, maybe it was yesterday, talking about how even in our, in the own, in our community, the black community, we're not even all on board with like, abolishing the police you mentioned it to oh, yeah. some black folks and like well who gonna keep the who gonna keep these you know folks from breaking into my house yeah you know so yeah. so talk a little bit about like reform versus abolition and why you why you've sort of come to the the conclusion for you for for you that abolition really is the way yeah so i think i think the first thing that tends to throw people when when we talk about abolishing police and prisons is they're like well how do we stay safe like mm-hmm. like what do we do and And I think what people don't always understand about the abolitionist movement and the argument is we're saying we we want to be safe, but we have to take another approach because we're not safe. Like the policing in prison, it's it's not keeping us safe. So if the goal is for us to be safe, if the goal is to end violence in our communities um, and take care of each other, we need another approach. And, and that's where like the call for defunding the police comes from. That phrase also freaks people out. What do you mean defund the police? Well, we're saying we keep spending millions and millions and millions and millions on police, but then every year they keep telling us that it's not addressing crime. Right. So, so then why does it make sense to keep throwing money at something that we know is not addressing it, but what we do know could help reduce crime are things that we don't fund like mental health services, you know, a lot of, in fact, I think the majority of calls that police get are tied to mental health crises. Right. 
Let's fund, let's fund some other ways of addressing mental health. Uh, let's fund housing for people. Let's raise wages, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, what we label crime is happening with people who are, like I said, either in mental crises, yep. um, other in desperate situations. Yep. Um, then the other part of it is that we have a system of policing and prisons that is adding to violence. So it would, it would be a different situation, right? If we were even saying like police are not keeping us safe, right? Just that's it. Like they're, right, they're right. all really well-meaning people, but it's not really working. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, we have police who are killing people. Yeah. They're murdering people. Um, we know that domestic violence is happening at a higher rate among police than the average population. Mm-hmm. We know that there are innocent people being held in jails and dying simply because they can't afford to post bail. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there is a lot of corruption. Um, they, they just had a study that came out showing that a lot of like the contraband and drugs that are introduced into jails and prisons, are they coming from the Corrections officers, of course they are, you know, so it's about it, it's about finding other avenues for solving our problems as a society, because violence, that's yeah. a that's a social problem. That's all. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's always with us. Right. Yeah. And it's saying, let's find a way to address these things without adding more violence to the situation, yeah. which is what we have right now. So it's well, really practical yeah. when you talk about it. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, we haven't always had policing in the United States, right? I know. I mean, this is, so, so this is this was a post uh, emancipation construct that we came up with. Well, see, and that's the other thing too. I didn't even touch on racism, right? right because right. we know that policing and prisons became kind of like the replacement for slavery. Right. As soon as they abolished slavery, in fact, some of the oldest prisons in this country used to be plantations. Hmm. You know, Mississippi State Penitentiary began as the Angola plantation. They they literally turned it from a plantation into a prison so they could they could find a new way to force people to do free labor. Wow. So we, we got a whole bunch of people locked up who don't even need to be locked up um, mm-hmm. just as as a starting point. Um, and then it just becomes this whole new way that people make money off of locking people up and tearing our communities up. Gosh. I, and and what what blows me away is that when you name these things, it's like everybody goes, duh. Like, I, I mean, I've been in conversations with folks that are like, you know, that have problems with defunding the police and abolishing the police. Mm-hmm. And you'll say all the things you just said and, and I've, other things that I've said and, and they'll go, yeah, 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 yeah. But still, like, it's like right. it doesn't matter what we say, how we say it, how logical it is, how true it is. People just stay stuck in the way things are and don't want them to change. And mm-hmm. I just, it blows my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think change scares people. And, and I think the thing to remember also was like everything that we accept as normal now was at one point people said was impossible. Yeah. People said yeah. the same exact thing when they talked about abolishing slavery. Well, how can you abolish slavery? The whole entire world is ordered around it. Like, how do you, mm-hmm. what do we do with all these people once they're set free. How do we keep making sugar and cotton? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you do this? Um, when people said, you know, we want to have a 40 hour work week, how can you have a 40 hour work week? Like, how do we possibly make things work? Children, we shouldn't have child labor. How do you, what do you mean we should, uh, how do you, how do you make that work? We're going to educate every child. You mean, we're going to try to build a school for all the children. 
instead wow. of just having them work out in the fields. I mean, these are, you know, these are real conversations that had to happen. And I think sometimes it's like hard for people to imagine yes. things once they yes. see it, though, they see it. And yeah. so I think we're at a point right now where like the struggle is trying to get people like I'm really involved in the housing work right now. Okay. We're like, can we please just fund housing? Like, let's just try it. Let's see if if you were to fund housing for people at the level that you fund these militarized police forces, I guarantee you, I guarantee you we would see a drop in crime and conflict and violence. Let's just try it. Yeah. But see, people who don't want things to change, they don't want to allow us to try it because once you try it and people see it, then you can't go back. You can't and see that's we're at a moment like that right now. We we they had the civil rights movement, things integrated, they see things are changing now, and that's why they're so scared. Because once yeah. people see the change and people start adapting to the change, then you you can't go back. People see that it's yeah. possible. Well, you just answered for me something that I've wondered for some time, and because one of the things that I, I haven't really emphasized uh with the work you do is that you're also an artist. Mm -hmm. Um and when you talk about imagination. This is what we always talk about when we're talking about trying to contend for a better world, for a more just world than the one we live in, is it begins with us being able to imagine it. It's interesting even when you, when you mentioned, you know, slavery and the abolition of slavery and how every no one in that time could imagine. There were even slaves that couldn't imagine a world without slavery. There were slaves advocating for just a better form of slavery. We don't, I mean, we that's just crazy talk to us because we're now free thanks to the work of the ancestors. But like, it's it's interesting now when you say that, it makes me think, oh, this is why there's so many artists. Because artists are creative. Artists help us reimagine things. Artists help us see something or hear something or even taste something that's like, oh, I, I never tasted anything like that. I never seen anything like that. I never heard anything like that. And now I can imagine something different. Like, it, how do you see your work as an artist kind of like folding into your work as an activist? I do. And it, but it's interesting because I didn't always like, I mm. think when I, when I first kind of like became consciously an activist or started identifying that way, mm. I actually got involved with the moral Monday movement that Reverend Barber was leading in North Carolina. This was back in 2013. And I think at, at that time I had just uh, finished an artist residency in New York, had come back to North Carolina and I was kind of seeing art and filmmaking, that's really my wheelhouse is like filmmaking, as kind of like something I was putting on the back burner so mm. I could focus on issues that I thought were really important. I wanted to help take a stand. What I realize now, though, is how much those things go hand in hand. Like, I, mm. I realize, like, there's a very long history of artists being involved in movement um, and really recognizing exactly what you're talking about, like the power of art, because art really is about imagining something and putting something in the world that didn't exist mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And it helped me appreciate even more why there's been such an effort to prevent us mm -hmm. from having access, right, mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to communication and art and film because of the mm -hmm. way it influences ideas. Like, I think limiting who is allowed to tell stories, who is allowed to make films or create visual art that's on display in the museums and public areas even the whole issue about Confederate monuments and statues and flags, right? It all goes yeah. back to like trying to limit people's imagination. Think mm -hmm. about like how many movies and TV shows and everything we get there about police. <laughs> like, exactly. I grew up, I grew up, I actually grew up watching cops, you know, the show cops. So did I. Yeah. So did yeah. I. And, and Bad Law Boys, and Order. Yeah. 
Right. And I thought, I thought that's how the justice system worked. I was like, cause if you look at law and order, you would think we have a really pretty good justice system. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. if somebody's innocent, they're going to get a good attorney who fights to the end. And, you know, you're going to have yep. a prosecutor who realizes that they're innocent and is going to, you know, <laughs> do the right thing. Um, it can really distort Absolutely. your understanding, you know? Um, and that's also why, you see on the on the flip side of that, black artists, brown artists having to fight to tell stories or or to do anything that might, you know, challenge the status quo through the storytelling. You know, um, yeah. uh, sometimes art can be one of the most powerful ways to yeah. shift people's thinking about things. And, and I don't think I really appreciated that until I got involved in in activism and the movement that I, I even realized how much I could really do. Through yeah. art and writing, yeah, yeah, because it's all connected, man. It's it's crazy to think about even things as subtle and small as flesh-colored band-aids. Oh yeah, you know all of these things that reinforce normative mm-hmm. ideologies about who is in power and who who has dignity and who doesn't. And there's all of these things. I, I remember, like, I think it was the show Heat, where like as a kid, it was like this this they had this like white sheriff and his. His partner was this black guy. Uh-huh. And so, so somehow in that, as a kid, I was I, I really wanted to believe that because I think they were in Alabama. I'm like, this has that has to in be the racist. Heat of the night. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, that has yep. to be racist. But they got a black dude there, so I guess it's not racist. <laughs> you know what I mean, mm-hmm. I like all of these subtle things that tell you the good guys are cops. I remember growing up playing cops and robbers, mm-hmm. right? And everybody, you know, everybody wanted to be the cop, you know. And I and I these all these things sort of reinforce your ideas. And if you are and this is why I think there's so so many um, black and brown folks that go that are quicker to say we need to abolish because we felt the pointy end of the sword. Mm-hmm. We we have felt the sting of it where a lot of our white brothers and sisters, it's like they're fine. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like they, they can still they can still make heroes out of police because they've never harmed. Mm-hmm. Them. But we mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. living in communities where our brothers and sisters are, are dying at the mm-hmm. hands of police or, or being abused at the hands of police. And we go, yeah, they're not as like this system. There may be some good folks, some good people who get involved in a bad system. It does not change how mm-hmm. it comes out when they're dealing with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I really do think it's, it's, it's a different consciousness. Like when, when the color of your skin impacts how you have to move in society at all mm. times, right? It's just, it's a totally different, different level of awareness. Like, I mean, and it's something I think about. I always think about like, if I go into a store, are they going to profile me? Are they going to think I'm stealing? Sometimes it's, and I mean, I mean, it's never unfounded. Right. But I I think I was just in the card shop the other day. I was shopping for greeting cards. And I'm like, there's always a part of me that is like, are they going to follow me around the store? Yeah. Um, if I yeah. walk out of here and and the alarm system goes off, like what could come with it? But that's because we know, we know, we see, you know, all the time people dying, getting killed by police for no reason at all, yeah. except just being black in all kinds of different situations. And they start um, with those really, very real. they start with those really benign issues like you described. I was in a store, mm-hmm. I went to buy a greeting card. I was, yeah. I was selling cigars out in front, I mean, cigarettes out in front of a, a store, right. like, I was walking through a neighborhood with a candy bar and a hoodie on. Like there are all of these things, these ordinary normal situations that wind up in absolute tragedy for black folks. Of course, we have some paranoia, if you want to call it that, when we go into a store. I mean, and the thing (laughs) is that and the thing that we see, too, is that the larger society always justifies it. There's always a justification, you know. 
um, they said basically that, you know, Trayvon Martin was responsible for his own death. Uh, you know, George Floyd, even though there was a conviction in that case, you still had and still have a significant amount of people in this country who are arguing that his death was justified, you know, so it's kind of like it, it doesn't matter. And then again, on the flip side, right, you see an incident like January 6th, where people are assaulting police, you know, right on live television. And nobody is, except for, um, you know, the one woman who was given a warning before she was shot. Nobody's shot. Nobody's arrested on the spot. Yeah. Um, So, so you, it's, it's, it's their plainest day for anyone who wants to acknowledge it. Right. Um, But you just have a lot of people, they don't want to acknowledge it. And that's a major part of how racism I think has always operated in this country everybody knows there's two sets of rules Mm. um and and pretending like there's not is kind of the number one unspoken rule of racism yeah so i'm like right now there's all this conspiracy theory around pandemic virus and Mm -hmm. vaccines and you know i i was literally on the cdc uh website this morning and and i was telling my wife earlier i'm like i cannot believe that on the cdc website they have to explain that they're not putting microchips in our bodies with the vaccine. That is literally on the CDC website. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I just, I can't believe that that's what's going on. I, and at the same time, in the black community, there are things that started off as a conspiracy, like uh, the government is bringing narcotics into black neighborhoods mm-hmm. and supplying mm-hmm. them with cocaine and crack. We found out that's actually mm-hmm. true. Right, right. So what are, like, and, and when we talk about, you mentioned it earlier, and I've read it, I think, uh, in, I don't know which book it was about policing, but that this this system was designed this way. Mm-hmm. Who designed it this way? Like, what, it, this, this isn't conspiracy. This is actually, there are actually people who historically designed a system to suppress black and brown people and to harass and arrest black and brown people. Like, who are these people? Where did it come from? What's the history behind that? Yeah, so I use the term ruling white elite. That's Mm. the term I use to refer. So, I mean, there's a number of different places we could pinpoint in history as an example, but I would definitely look at, like, Bacon's Rebellion. This was in the 1600s in colonial America, right? So Mm. there was a point where... You had, uh, you know, African laborers and European laborers in the new colonies in America, but they were pretty much of the same social status. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of Africans weren't even technically enslaved at that point. They were all considered indentured servitude. They were all Mm -hmm. um, held in indentured servitude. Okay. Um, and they started to rebel. They started to work. They they were socializing, commingling with each other. and they started to rebel against the landowners. Hmm. And so there was a conscious, there, there was a conscious decision to introduce this skin color race-based system of control in, in America where they decided that um, Africans would be held in perpetual bondage. You were no longer an indentured servant. Um, you were now enslaved. Wow. Um, you even have early court cases where, uh, you know, someone might be the, the child of an enslaved African woman, right, and the white man who owned her, and they're trying to sue for freedom. They're like, well, I'm, you know, as much European as I am African. And they, in that, in that instance, made court rulings that will know you will take whatever the status of your mother is. Now, in England and in Europe, in tradition, 
you would adopt the status of your father. That that mm-hmm. was uh, that was the mm-hmm. legal tradition in Amer in in Europe, especially if your father acknowledged you. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if your father was not married to your mother in Europe, but if he acknowledged you, then you would have the full rights and titles and everything. You know that that would come. It would all depend on your father's acknowledgement. They changed that in colonial America specifically wow. to support this new system of of rape and and slavery. Um, so it, it's not, you know, when we, when we say these things, this is, this is historical fact. It's documented. This is part of the history that they want to suppress, right? When yeah. we see all of this stuff going on in the school system right now, mm. or they're talking about critical race theory, this is the stuff yeah. that they don't want people to know. Because when you know things like that, and you know that the world as it exists now is not how it has always existed, that this literally is like just the past few centuries that they put mm-hmm. this in place mm-hmm. then you start saying again back to that thing about imagination you're like well yeah. it wasn't always this way it doesn't have to always be yeah. this way right and yeah. we know that this is like an invented system so so when i say like who is behind the conspiracy and i say ruling white elite that's what i mean i'm talking about the people who generationally uh at, mm. at generation after generation they own the land they own most of the wealth they're the one percent they're the ones talking about going to space right now to do space tourism right <laughs> um they don't want to pay taxes um that man 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 yeah and it's you know it's in our dna mm-hmm. all of us you know it's like oh, we, yeah. pass, we pass down way more than just you know hair and eye color there's traits mm-hmm. there's there's trauma there is oh yeah belief in our blood and it's um, yeah. I mean, it's, it shouldn't be hard for us to believe that generation after generation of ruling white elites would behave and think and believe in the same ways that Absolutely. whether they were whether they were directly taught or not. And we know that a lot of them were directly taught by their, you know, their parents. But and let me let me point out this about the vaccine thing too. Notice how the nations that are having the hardest time getting the vaccine are all black and brown nations. Africa only has like two percent vaccination rate right now. Uh, Cuba has been trying to vaccinate the population but can't get the needles uh, uh, because of the embargo that the U.S. has has put on it. So, I mean, this is not, you know, it's always consistent that the wealthy and the whiter you are, you are first in line for everything. And the more it's like, look at the situation with Haiti. I mean, you can't talk about what's happening in Haiti today without talking about what's been happening for a few centuries now. And that's really interesting because you have you have like a handful of, or I, I really shouldn't quantify. I don't know how many, but you got black folks that are that believe that you know the vaccine is the government's way of controlling us or you know harming us. Meanwhile, we do see that black and brown mm-hmm. countries are having a hard time getting access to it. You know, so mm-hmm. if you really want to harm them, if if you really want to harm right. black folks, dump the vaccine in Africa. In right. Cuba. Like, exactly. You know that those are. It's just interesting that the stuff that's in front of us and that we just sometimes might miss. And I think some of that disinformation is intentional too. I do think that our Mm. communities have been fed some intentional disinformation around, around the virus and the vaccine. Gosh, man. And and this is why, like, you know, the work that you do, um, the work that any of us, regardless of the size of our platform do is so important and why being responsible with it is so important. Mm -hmm. Why mm-hmm. being true to it is so important because it's literally our lives and the and the future of our of our of our people that is like legitimately at stake if we are not vigilant and if we're not paying attention and if we're not naming the things even when they're not popular that Absolutely. need to be named. Absolutely. Yeah. So as an artist, one last thing I want to ask you about because I know like I think people think that 
activism is like, you know, for black folks that are activists, like we, when we were in school, you know, we just, <laughs> everybody said, I want to be a doctor, lawyer, fireman. We were like, I want to be an activist. I want to climb the Confederate, you know, flagpole <laughs> and take it down. Like these, this is a default that you got into because you witnessed injustice. Mm-hmm. But let's say the world is remade and, and we do, which I don't believe we'll see in our lifetime, but let's, let's just, let's just for a moment, imagine we get to like, mm-hmm. what kind of art do you make in a world like that? Like what, what kind of, what kind of, what, like what's beautiful in the world? What is like, what compels you? What do you see that makes you go, man, there is goodness. Yeah. You know, I have been giving a lot of thought to art outside of capitalism, mm-hmm. because if you think about it, like art and creativity is really just a part of human culture. And yeah. I think that I think that outside of this context where we're talking about like what is your profession and how do you make money and earn a living and what kind of art do you make that will be profitable, right? Mm-hmm. People people made things for other reasons. It was about, mm-hmm. you know, it was about remembering who we are. Um, it was about expressing ourselves. It was about um, you know, finding our connection to the universe and to other mm. people around us. So, and I don't think that we have to be completely without that now. Like, I think it, I think it is uh, just kind of about what is the consciousness that we apply mm-hmm. to the art that we make. But, mm-hmm. but when I think about what is art like in, in the world that you're talking about, I think it's that. I think it's where mm-hmm. we are kind of free to reclaim all of that again. Because one of the things I say, too, is like, you know, obviously I identify as an artist, and I think there have always been people who are, like, particularly good at a craft, and so they identify as, as you know, a, a craftsperson. But I also think that all people are creative. I think mm-hmm. that art is something that everybody can engage in. And I, and I do think it's like an important part of the human experience. Yeah. I meet so many people who are like, especially with you probably experiences, like when they, when they run into an artist, they want to tell you about the art that they used to do. There's so many <laughs> yeah, things that people, yeah. you know what I mean? There's so many yeah. things that people are creative, but they put it on the back shelf because somebody told them that they couldn't make a living doing it. Mm. But everything doesn't have to be about making a living or, you know, earning something or profitability. And I think that's just kind of, this capitalist ethos has kind of put that into us. Yeah. Sometimes you can make art just for joy, yeah. <laughs> just for yeah. pure enjoyment. Yeah. You know, imagine that, imagine that we don't have to just be enslaved to mm-hmm. capitalism, that we could just right. do things because we believe it's our contribution to the world or to ourselves or yeah. to our community. That would be amazing. <laughs> you know, yeah. imagine yeah. that. Bree, thanks so much. I really appreciate like um, you taking the time. I know you're incredibly busy, so if you taking the time to come on this podcast, it just it's a it's a huge honor to me and everybody that's listening to it. So thanks so much. Absolutely, I was really glad to join you. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening. Um, if you want to stay connected with Bree, you can go to her website. The her website and all of her social channels are in the show notes uh, of this episode. Thanks you to all of you. Thank you to all of you who are part of the Patreon community. All of you who have subscribed to this podcast, who shared it, who tweet about it. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.